Businesses have long had to cope with the impact of business cycles. Now, they must address not just cycles, but cyclones. Storms spin up seemingly out of nowhere, irrespective of the ups and downs of the overall economy. Read what global executives are doing to mitigate these risks and seize their opportunities. In the fifth annual Alex Partners Disruption Index at disruption.alexpartners.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. In London, I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Today, a special show. So it's Sunday morning. I'm recording this podcast in Lviv in Western Ukraine. I've just returned here on the overnight train from Kiev. Our editor-in-chief, Zanny Minton-Beddows, went on a journey with our Russia editor, Arkady Ostrovsky, to the heart of Ukraine's war effort. Is it dark because you're darkening it or because it's the end of the day? I think I always was strong, but not so, not like, not like today, of course. We heard last weekend that there might be a possibility of a one-on-one interview with President Volodymyr Zelensky. It was confirmed a day or so later, and of course we jumped at the chance, started making arrangements, left London, when was it, Thursday morning, flew to Warsaw, drove to the border, then drove on to Lviv and took the overnight train. The chance to meet Zelensky was just an extraordinary journalistic opportunity. What he has done to lead the Ukrainian people into grave, determined resistance to Russian forces is something that has captured the imagination of the world. And the possibility of meeting him was something that I just couldn't miss. Also going, of course, to Kiev at this moment gave me the chance to witness personally what was happening in Ukraine. I mean, it is right here on our doorstep. And then, of course, an added bonus was that I was going with Arkady, who is not just our Russia editor, a walking history book, a walking cultural guide to this part of the world, a kind of Tolstoy meets journalist. And so the three things together just were too good an opportunity to miss, whatever the risks. Okay, Akadi, tell me where we are. So we're at the border between Poland and uh, Ukraine on the, the other side is the little place where you cross and then you get to Lviv. We're about an hour and a half away from Lviv. I think the station we're going to get picked up is called Chigini. Um, and there are a few, you know, there's quite a lot of, a few ambulances, it's all very calm. So we're now on the Ukrainian side. We're now on the Ukrainian side. Very, very, very different to the Polish side. As you can see, there are yes. many, many more people. Long queue on the left-hand side here. There's boxes, there's people who've been standing here, we've been told, for hours. Um, there are people with lots of energy bars being given out, people helping, but a really very long queue. Yeah. 
Yes, about that, probably about yeah, about possibly more. I think we're now going to go and try and find our driver who's going to take us to Lviv station. The experience of seeing hundreds of refugees crossing the border was a powerful one. But it was actually only when we got to Lviv train station that I really felt a sense that we were in a country at war. So this is Lviv station at about 10 o'clock in the evening on March 24th. I'm sitting against a pillar. Seats are all completely taken. There is a very distinctive smell, the smell that Arkady calls the smell of war. People who have not had the chance to wash, the smell of exhaustion. This does not feel like normal, and it's a pretty sobering experience. Now we're looking for platform two. Platform two, east side one. Who's the road here? waiting for the train to Kiev, which has been delayed. Uh, there's a train just leaving it, the train is completely dark. All trains travel completely dark, and obviously it makes it much safer. The lights actually in the station are dimmed, and both Arkady and I had a very strong sense walking into the station tonight that it was the first time we felt we were in a war zone. So here we are on the train from Lviv to Kiev. It's close to midnight, the end of the first day which saw us flying from London. As we were settling in for the night, our carriage's attendant, a woman probably, I guess, in her early 60s, came into our car to talk to us. I caught a chunk of it. She's, I heard her say she was frightened. But tell me what she was saying. Yes, I mean, she wanted to talk. She's from Kiev and she saw us as, you know, she came up to us because we were foreigners and because we were journalists. Wanted to talk, wanted to tell, just share the pain. Just the pain was sort of very... Um, she used the word several times. She said, this is a nice country, a nice, normal, kind country. And now there is... And she used the word, she spoke, she's a Russian speaker, and she used the word bida. Bida, which is something that has befallen you, something that struck you. It's a disaster, it's a trouble, it's sorrow, it's grief. It's it's a short Russian word which means so much and which is actually, come to think of it, associated with war. I think it's time to get a good night's sleep. Yes. Good night, all. Good night. After a restful night on the train, as the morning sun shone, we rolled into Kiev. Arriving in Kiev. Soldiers outside the train. 
sunny day. Amazing, isn't it? And very warm. Here we are, on to the next stage. Navigate an ever-changing landscape with global insights and market intelligence from the Economist Intelligence Unit. Our award-winning analysis helps clients to seize opportunities and manage risk effectively. EIU examines the economic and political landscape of nearly 200 countries with accurate and impartial analysis and forecasts. Discover challenges faced by each economy, examining impacts on supply chains, overseas operations, commodity prices and market dynamics. To help your organization better understand the world and prosper within it, visit EIU.com. It was quite a journey to get to see President Zelensky. We first of all drove through Kiev past the anti-tank obstacles, the fortified checkpoints. There were a lot of men with guns. We had to change cars. And eventually we arrived at a big metal gate. The aide who was accompanying us, I remember this very vividly, said, welcome to our fortress. Inside there were a lot of snipers, a lot of sandbags. We went into a building down some steps. It got dark. We had to leave our phones, devices, electronics, pens at the door, anything that could give away our location. We emerge from these darkened corridors and come into a room which is the room that, that everyone will have seen around the world. It's the situation room, if you will, that is beamed on Zoom every time President Zelensky talks to parliaments around the world. And it actually looks, you know, frankly, like a kind of corporate conference room, white full mica table, high-backed office chairs. And we were sitting in there and suddenly there was a, a slight kerfuffle, but he walks in. And he's... He's extremely authentic. He's very low-key. He sits down and, you know, we're about to start the interview and it's, it's a bit confusing because there are a lot of, we're not quite sure, Russian, Ukrainian, English. And so to sort of lighten things up before we start the formal interview, I asked him a question, which is actually something I've been really wondering, which is, you know, where does he get his stock of camouflage chic green sweatshirts, hoodies, you know, the things that have inspired Emmanuel Macron's fashion sense. So I just want to ask you one informal question, which is, did you have all of these clothes? Yes, I had it. You Be had before the book? Yes. I had not, not so much. <laughs> or not so many. He seemed like a man who probably never imagined he would face such a challenge, but I think has realized that he had it in him to, to face it. I think I always was strong, but not like today, of course. Not like today. People helped and helped. How did that transformation happen? It's an extraordinary change. I think that these changes happened already in Ukraine when they elected me, when they voted, because the people, Ukrainians, they understood that they want changes, they saw my honest position to everything, to everything. But did you know you had this inside you, to be so brave, to be such a strong person? You know, it's not about I'm brave or, or not. It's, it's like 
I have to do this way. It's like all of us that we are not ready for the war because before it began. You can't say, if I would be the president of Ukraine or Ukraine, I would do this way or this way. You, you, you can't imagine what does it mean and you can't imagine even how you will do. It was like with, with, with me. When In fact, the really remarkable thing was that Zelensky found out about the war's start from his children. I think nobody, nobody understood what to do when it began. Where were you? In Kiev. I was in the residence and my wife and my children, they told me that early in the morning, it was, it was five, five, five o'clock, four, four fifty, like, you know, and they told me earlier that I've got the call from our um, Stuff. Your yeah. wife and children told yeah, you. They told that something something going on because we heard it very loud and and we we was we sleeping. And at that moment, you knew straight away. We knew about that they are preparing. We knew it, of course, and and it was. But even once the shelling started, he told us that he was very clear that he did not want to leave Kiev, even though that had been the presidential protocol. And, and they said that the protocol that if you will not be safe, it will be a big problem for the Ukraine. You have to be in such place where you will be safe and it's not about you. It's, it's like drunk man on the road that it's not about his life. It's also about the lives in other cars. Yes, but, but I'm not drunk. And I but think... You changed the protocol. You didn't go. Yes, of course. Leave. Of course, I changed everything. What I could do, I think that... And you decided that by yourself? You said... Yes, of course, saying. of course. I understood what's going on. I understood that all these steps and all, all these protocols, all that things, uh, they're about global things, not, not only about Ukraine. That's why I'm saying that uh, I'm not a hero, maybe, maybe... Over the past months, it's clear that Ukraine has had a thumping victory in the information war. And that's an area where Zelensky, the former actor, has really come into his own. Is that why now you are speaking to the people of the of West course. rather than to of their course. politicians? Of course. I think so, that sometimes politicians live in vacuum, atmosphere, first of all, information atmosphere, that we do that, so the consequences can be escalations and war. What we see that this Zamfnuta uh, closed atmosphere, which is with Putin now, so he doesn't know. Mm. I, 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 I can't describe everything what's going on with him. I can't describe because I, I don't know how, how much that would mean with whom he speaks each day or each week. And that means that he can't understand or he couldn't know what's going on outside. Even me, if I'm sitting in the office and I'm not going outside in three, four days, you will not know correct information what's going on in the world. Because uh, only information... This interview was... Pretty remarkable, because it was conducted in a rather chaotic combination of three different languages. President Zelensky speaks really quite good English now and indulged me by speaking in English for a lot of the time. He responded to questions in Russian himself. But when he got tired of speaking English, he felt it was important to respond to questions in English in Ukrainian, not in Russian. 
So we had a complete melee. And at one point, there wasn't a formal interpreter and an interpreter had to be brought in and he was busy doing something else. But we got through it and we now switch in this to Ukrainian. But so we, you've, you've talked about the beginning, but let's, let's talk about now, where we are now, the stage of the war. Do you think it's, you know, is there a real chance you can win? We believe in victory. What does a victory look like, a Ukrainian victory? To save as many people as we can. I don't know how long it will last, but we'll fight until the last, the very last city we have. And for that victory, you need more help, and what kind of help? <laughs> we have a long list. That's why we're here. Uh, first, what's to act preventively, that's what we've been saying all this time, what we've been saying to our partners all the time. That's what I insisted, that if sanctions were preemptive, that this full scale wouldn't have been the, 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 this other scale. But when, you, when you, you've said this, you say it to your Western Yes. Uh, Western partners, you ask for tanks, you ask for jets, and yet President Macron said this is a red line they will not cross. Why is that? When you when you talk to them, you ask for more defensive weaponry, you ask for offensive weaponry, they say no. Because they're afraid Russia. That's it. Right now, you have asked for many things. What are your top priorities now? Right now, when people... Airplanes, in... number one, airplanes. Number two, but it's number one, tanks. Yes, we don't have it so much as we need, and we've got a lot of from Russians. You have to know that they are running. Yeah, they are running. Yes, they are afraid our soldiers. And they was running. I think yesterday we've got twelve or seventeen. So you are are you close to running out of essential tanks? I've mentioned that much. Nikto nam ne predaje tanki. It's not about that we are running uh, out of the essential uh, equipment that we need, but that nobody is uh, supplying us to, to, to add to, to that. And it's about tanks, it's about jets, it's about armored vehicles, and we already sent out the letters to the countries because we know the list of the countries who possess what. From the modern auto uh, equipment up to the Soviet uh, types of the equipment, and we sent out the letters to all of them asking for uh, the supply to be... All who has it got these letters. And are you It seems to me that Putin himself doesn't know about that. We kept talking. We asked President Zelensky more about what countries were doing the most to help. We talked about Russia. We talked about Vladimir Putin. This still sticks with me. He told me that Vladimir Putin wasn't even mourning the Russian army's casualties. That he was throwing Russian soldiers like logs into a train's furnace. I guess the conversation must have gone on for another hour more. 
and at the end we wrapped up. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you so very much. Very Thank much. you very much. As you go, I have to ask you a last question. Yeah. You've become Churchill of our time. Churchill practiced his speeches a lot. Do you practice yours? No, I don't have time for it. <laughs> I, I feel it. Well, you feel it and the world hears it. Thank you very, Thank you very so much. much. Thank you for I coming. So much Thank you. Thank you. Oh, okay. Bye bye. All the best. And to you. We were eventually led back out of the building. We got our phones, our equipment, retraced our steps, and emerged out into the bright sunshine of the streets of Kiev. A little later in the afternoon, we went out for a walk, strolling around the empty streets of Kiev, completely, hauntingly empty. That's our car there, in case we have to get into it in a hurry and get out of here. We spent the night. The following day, we had more interviews, and then we went back to the train station for the overnight train to Lviv. And when we finally got to this hotel room, I asked Arkady, what did he make of all of this? Well, Zani, yes, I mean, this wow and what has just happened is something that actually been following me throughout this trip because there is a sense of completely surreal reality around us. I mean, this is a Second World War movie set, except it's actually really happening. And what really struck me is how Zelensky was not performing. You know, you could expect an actor, very good communicator, as you said, to do his spiel, you know, to be a commander, to be war leader, to be Churchill. And actually, because everything that's happening is so real, it is to do with his life, he's the target, his wife, his family, his kids. There was no room for performance. There is no room there for some rhetorical flourishes. He is who he is, and he understands that it is his genuine and his authenticity, which is what makes people believe him. I think this is what's so striking is that to a lot of the outside world, and because this is the way how we try to conceptualize it, it's a movie, it's a book, it's something from history. To these people in this country at the moment, this is the story, this is the life they're having. I think that's right. I mean, he is the kind of the country personified right now, because whether it's the trains, whether it's the nature of the anti-tank barricades in Kiev, it's all faintly, it's not chaotic, but it's, it's, it's sort of informally organized. It's networked. It's sort of spontaneous groups of people. Everyone we talked to, and we talked to many people in the subsequent days, many more interviews, we were sort of piecing together a picture of a country's resistance that wasn't really sort of, there wasn't a grand plan from on top. It's been the epitome of, I guess, cooperative spontaneity. And Zelensky, I think he's playing his role in this, and his role is to be the communicator. He is the person who is talking to the world, he's talking to the parliament, he's talking to the people of the world. He is the face, the voice of Ukraine, and that's his role in this. He's playing it extraordinarily well. You're right, he's not acting because he is being himself, he's being absolutely authentic. Zani, I think you've actually picked on something absolutely essential, not just about this war, but about this country, because... Over the years, one of the most frustrating things covering Ukraine was just how chaotic it is. How, you know, it can't be run like this. You know, there are no institutions. You know, there is anarchy. But in fact, corrupt it is anarchy. corrupt anarchy sometimes, you know, sometimes extraordinary movement of people and voluntary movements, particularly since the Revolution of Dignity in 2013. But it is actually exactly that, that anarchy, that sense of we don't rely on the state. We all know what to do. The country comes together, everybody knows their place. It's that 
chaos is that anarchy, is that network effect, if you like, that actually made this country so strong and made it resist the largest army in Europe for four weeks. I mean, it is extraordinary. And Zelensky is the public international avatar of that. He's the man who is addressing the British Parliament and quoting Churchill, addressing the American Congress and remembering 9-11. It's pitch perfect. He's laying out what Ukraine needs. He's the face, he's the voice of Ukraine. He is the avatar of a determined, brave country that is resisting with all its might Putin's aggression. The war of Russia is not only the war against Ukraine. Its meaning is much wider. Russia started the war against freedom as it is. That's the reason we all must stop Russia. The world must stop the war. There was a lot more to the interview with President Zelensky. Have a listen to the whole thing on Thursday on our interview show, The Economist Asks. And our sister magazine, 1843, provides a fly-on-the-wall feeling of being inside the presidential compound with a leader who, despite it all, is never far from cracking a joke. Find all of our wider coverage and the very latest news at economist.com slash Ukraine dash crisis. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Navigate an ever-changing landscape with global insights and market intelligence from the Economist Intelligence Unit. Our award-winning analysis helps clients to seize opportunities and manage risk effectively. EIU examines the economic and political landscape of nearly 200 countries with accurate and impartial analysis and forecasts. Discover challenges faced by each economy, examining impacts on supply chains, overseas operations, commodity prices and market dynamics. To help your organization better understand the world and prosper within it, visit EIU.com.